Yeah, you know what? Like with um, I guess I'm very patriotic. When I went through the next 36, which is an entrepreneur acceleration program, it's built to educate young entrepreneurs that are starting out and give them the confidence and the resources and connections to hopefully make them a, a massive success. And they don't want people building small lifestyle businesses. They want them building global companies out of Canada. And I kind of like the underdog story a little bit in the sense that not a lot of Canadians yet, and it's it's definitely changing massively. Like our tech community is growing very strong. We have the Shopify's out there, the Hootsuites of the world. Like we've had a lot of big tech successes, and I think that's going to continue to happen. And I like the idea of showing other Canadians that we can be just as aggressive as American business owners and build these global companies. Like people celebrate selling their company for $50 million in Canada. Um, you know, they build a payments business, PayPal offers them 50 million and they're, you know, they think they've made it right. But, but the truth is the reason PayPal, an American company is buying that company for 50 million is because they want to capture all the future profits of that business line product or industry that they're or what have you. So I think that it's very important for Canadians to believe it um, and, and in their minds so that it gives them the energy to keep going when you're building something for two and a half years without any revenue. And all everybody else would tell you it's time to give up. You know, you have to persevere. And that's probably the number one thing. Like Steve Jobs will say, he's convinced that the only thing that sets apart a successful entrepreneur from an unsuccessful entrepreneur is perseverance. Right, getting through those hard times and pushing through and never stop believing to a hundred percent degree certainty. The origins of the phrase is a mystery. It takes a village to raise a child is a proverb that's spirited from African or Native American cultures. The phrase translates into saying that it takes an entire community of different people interacting with children in order for children to experience and grow in a safe environment. The thought leaders, game changers, and innovators that we look up to are often impacted by the same thing. They've been exposed to people, environments, and interactions that have helped shape and define who they are today. The It Takes the Sea Tribe Village podcast aims to identify, dissect, and celebrate the unsung heroes, things, and experiences that have impacted the greatest minds of our generation, and how these individuals are paying it forward for those to come. This episode is brought to you by the Sea Tribe Festival. Sea Tribe reimagines the festival experience with the goal of bringing together innovative and creative people and proactive thinkers. By integrating a business conference with music performances, trendy fashion shows, intimate roundtable discussions, culinary experiences, wellness sessions, and artistic activations, Sea Tribe curates inspiring environments that help catalyze action. Also brought to you by Autonomic. Leveraging AI to remove the biggest bottleneck when building software. Without getting too technical, Autonomic teaches computers and algorithms to test your software so that your most expensive engineering talent doesn't have to. Jonathan Holland is a serial fintech entrepreneur in the payment space with a proven track record of success. Jonathan went through the Next 36 Accelerator in 2016, where he was taught by business leaders with 10-figure exits. 
His current business, SmartPay, has just graduated from the number one globally recognized incubator in the world, the DMZ. SmartPay continues to grow month over month, where it's exceeding over six figures of revenue every single month. Yes, you've heard that right, every month. However, this wasn't achieved overnight. It's taken Jonathan two and a half years to see any revenue from any of his business ventures, and an additional year and a half just to turn its first profit. Now the SmartPay solution is simple. They allow e-commerce businesses to integrate debit payments on their website. And they've approached the problem in a different way than some of the incumbents in the space like PayPal and Visa. Outside of building a fast-growing technology rocket ship, Jonathan comes from humble beginnings and considers himself a late bloomer. Despite this, he advocates for Canadian entrepreneurship and believes that the country has what it takes to grow the next wave of multi-billion dollar companies. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Sar. Thanks for having me. I mean, I'm really excited for this. Kind of given my time in Toronto so far, you've definitely been the person that has stuck out like a sore thumb and, and in, a, in a good way. <laughs> Thank you, you for that. You I appreciate it. Outside of the company that you're you're building, I think you're a guy that has really strong morals and has a really interesting story to tell. So I'm in, I'm very excited to dive into this here yeah me as well so kind of aligning with the thread of what this podcast is about um of how you know it takes a village to build a company an individual an organization whatever you want to pinpoint it as you know can you maybe share your thoughts around some people in your life that have helped you along the way and maybe they never received anything in return other than the fact that they got to see an individual like yourself succeed. Are there people in your life that you can pinpoint? Yeah, no, so that's a really great question. I mean, I, I think, and, and as you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, it takes every kind of opportunity or every kind of advantage you can get to be successful, right? Because obviously the probabilities and the statistics are against you when you're building a company. So, in the, I mean, there's several people along the way, no question. Like the list would be too long to just list, but I'll tell you what I find the most interesting, the most um, impactful people for me were the people that helped me in the very, very early days of the business. And the thing about these people is I actually don't personally know them. So, we, I basically started the business out of university. Um, I, I went to Brock University and they had an incubator called BioLink. So I started working on a BioLink and BioLink didn't really have any kind of exciting tech companies that were being launched at the time. And I was building this, um, the, the business in, uh, in the early days was called Student Currency Exchange. And what it did is it helped international students pay for tuition to all the different universities around the world. And we would help exchange their currency to different currencies and have it sent out. And basically, like every other company that went through this incubator would be like a lawnmower business or like a, a videography, uh, small kind of 
lifestyle business. And I'm trying to build this like big, like, you know, international payment business that uh, nobody kind of had experience around me of, of building. So they would give me advisors and stuff, but I looked at them and I wasn't willing to trade places with them. So in the early days, since I didn't know what the hell I was doing, I literally sat down on my laptop and I typed in, how do you build a company in Canada? Like, that's what I typed in Google. I have no idea what I'm doing, right? Like, I'm like a young student, like, well, I guess I was a mature student because I was a bit older. But, um, you know, what I started doing, though, because I I realized that everybody around me wasn't going to help me achieve the level of success I was looking for, which is a multi-billion dollar company, which is no small feat, right? So you have to make sure... You're surrounding yourself around the best of the best to learn from them. So what I had to do is actually cut everybody out of my life, all my university friends, even people at the incubator, like they would stay there till 5, 6 p.m. and they're gone. So I'm there till three in the morning. So I was alone all the time, seven days a week, working 16 hour days. And the reason I started working 16 hour days is because I would type in motivational video into YouTube and I'd listen to Will Smith, uh, Warren Buffett. Steve Jobs, like you name it, Elon Musk. Like I would just listen to the best of the best and it doesn't have to be in business. It's people that have reached a material level of success where I'd be willing to trade places with that level of success. Now I, I'm still going to be myself and I'm still going to make my own path, but it just learning from people like that give you the confidence that you can, you know, build the best habits that they do collectively um, you know, do have the motivation that you need. It just gives you that encouragement because it took me two and a half years to finally launch the product because I had to build international bank relationships. And I'm just this kid at university. So, I mean, after two and a half years of not making any revenue, I mean, a rational, as you know, sorry, like a rational person would say, okay, you know, joke's over. It's time to move on and do something else. But um, I just, I stuck to it because all the greatest people said, like Warren Buffett says, uh, do whatever turns you on, you know, like make sure it's something that you're excited about. And I, so, I, so as a short answer, because the list would be incredibly long, like the next 36 and the founders of that transformational, the stuff at the DMZ, all the payments experts I've met with, all the compliance people, all the bankers, CEOs of banks that I text with on a regular basis now, like all of these individuals probably uh, brought the business that I built uh, to to the level of success it's at now. So yeah, it's a really good question, Sar. Really long list, but I would say in the early days, if you have no one exceptional around you, listen to them on YouTube or get in their heads in any way on their podcast, anything you can do and listen to people like that and make sure that uh, you know, you're know you picking the right people and you're being selective about that. A lot of threads that we can go there. I mean, I think you, yeah. you pointed out some really awesome direction for this conversation. I mean, how how did you get in touch with these people, you know, outside of, let's say, the Will Smiths and the Warren Buffetts and, you know, all that sort of stuff? But, you, you know, you mentioned that you would, you know, connect with, let's say, the, the CEOs of big banks and everything. I mean, what was your your tactic and strategies of getting in touch and meeting these people? Well, what you got to do, and you are, I'm pretty sure you already know this, Sar, but what you want to do is really understand who your audience is, uh, which is like any sale or any kind of partnership you're trying to build. So what I would do to reach out to, for example, CEOs of banks, well, for one, this was back in 2014 when I started. Nobody even called it fintech at this time. It was like that term just wasn't out there. But um, I was going around and my LinkedIn would say CEO of SmartPay. So I was the founder and CEO of a payment business. And I would reach out to banks and I would just mention to them, uh, have you looked into the new technologies out of the UK or out of the US that are coming out? Have you thought about any of this? And 
because I was able to think about the future of their business, uh, that's what they constantly think about every day. So they're thinking strategy and visionary as a CEO, and so am I, and we're in the same industry. So we kind of aligned in that way. So I actually had a lot of executive level people at banks um, respond back to me and were curious as to what we were up to. And when I started it in 2014, it was around February, March, uh, when I first had the idea um, over time, coming into 2015, fintech just blew up. It was the biggest buzzword ever. And I had already been in talks with a lot of these people. And now I started to get responses back. So I would say knowing your audience and how to align with exactly how they're thinking or things that would be interesting to them to talk about. And then as well, like when you're um, trying to, you know, get interest from these individuals, timing is everything if it comes to an industry change or something like that, because that'll just give you like a double edged sword there um, to, you know, meet new contacts and to get there. And I was able to, you know, land these meetings with executives at the banks, so like the CEO, the CFO, uh, the head of legal counsel, like I'd get all these people in their boardroom and I'd be taking the Greyhound bus from St. Catharines to Toronto in a suit and then walk into their boardroom just to have a meeting because I didn't own a car and I didn't have money to like, you know, drive back and forth all the time for gas. So um, yeah, it's, those couple things I think are very important to reach out to exceptional people. Hindsight's only twenty twenty, but we can look back and say that it's definitely paid off, you know, looking at the growth of where smart pay is now. Um, and I, we're, we're going to really dive into that in a sec, but there was also something that you mentioned of cutting people out of your life. I mean, I think that's one of the number one factors of why some folks don't aren't able to take that step forward because they have so much baggage in their life and they have people that are just so counterintuitive of where they want to be. You know, what what was that like for you? You know, how did you how did you go through that process? Was it just like a, a ghosting? I mean, I'm just thinking of, you know, people that are you know, important in my life per se, but may not be on the same wavelength in terms of where we want to be in the future. You know, what, what would you recommend to someone or somebody who is, is trying to take that next step of, you know, aligning their future with kind of the people that are in their life right now? And, you know, unfortunately having to get rid of some people that may be counter to, counterintuitive to their growth. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, Sardis is a straight up business decision, right? It's uh, unemotional, like zero emotion involved. It's you look at your friends and don't get me wrong. You can have different friends at different stages. They can have a family working a nine to five and that can still be your, your, your high school friend that you still connect with once a year. But there's something that Bill Gates has in common with both us and everybody else in this world. There's only 24 hours in the day. Bill Gates can't buy more time. We have exact same amount of time as Bill Gates. So it's how we utilize that time and how Bill Gates utilizes that time to get you to an exceptional uh, level of success. So I knew that all my friends were out drinking, you know, Monday, Thursday, uh, Friday, Saturday, you know, like all the different bar nights that were happening or something like that. And I just like, I looked at that and I'm like, there's no way that I'm going to achieve success if I'm out partying and living for the weekend. Like, it's just not how you build something. So the way I looked at it, and I didn't just ghost them, just when they would text me, hey, we're going to the bar, I would say, oh, guys, I'm, I'm working all night tonight. I'll be at the, you know, the student incubator. Sometimes they would show up at like 3.30 in the morning after the bar. I'm still at the office working, you know, and I would say hi. But I don't really have interest in going out and, and getting, you know, 
having drinks and you and getting, uh, you know, or at least at that time. Now, now we're reaching a little bit level of success where sometimes we do team building exercises with each other and go out and have some fun and, and take clients out and all that stuff's fine and it's important for the business because relationships are very important and one of the best ways I think is to break bread and, and you know drink wine basically. But um, yeah, like it wasn't hard for me. Uh, because it was a decision that I wanted to achieve that level of greatness. And the reason the decision wasn't hard for me is because every successful person will say the same thing. Like Les Brown, the motivational speaker, the pastor, he would say, you got to get the losers out of your life. Now, losers is probably a harsh term unless you really are hanging out with people that are, you know, maybe into drugs or bad things or whatever it is. But, um, you know, you got to be selective and it shouldn't be a hard decision. And if it is, uh, maybe making decisions on a continuous basis, AKA founding a company, maybe that's just not right for you. Thanks for that. Um, given, you know, given your roadmap of your professional journey, you know, what were some of the important milestones along the way? And, you know, what, what would you change if you could change anything? And to add to that question, how did, how did things change when you transitioned from the student foreign exchange company to what smart pay is now yeah there, there's um there's a couple moments through the journey where uh, a lot of these things happen so there's a woman named shannon passero and she owns a clothing line that's very successful she's a well-known entrepreneur uh, i think her her physical stores are in thorold ontario which is basically the same area as where brock university is and shannon uh was one of the judges on a panel for like a student entrepreneur competition i did after the first one that i won i won the first one and i impressed so many people i came into this one very well prepared very confident that i walk home with one of the five thousand dollar checks now shannon basically said to me uh this idea is not going to work i don't think this is you know you know and and we actually became uh, like we, we know each other now and we kind of laugh about this but um she basically kind of said like kind of shut it down and said this is a bad idea and, uh, you know, that actually, in that moment, I felt pretty crushed or down, um, but not in a negative way, because every adversity situation like that, there's always opportunity to learn, change things or grow. So it's always a positive in my mind. And I think everybody should think like that, or you are going to get too mentally drained or, or tired or bogged down. And Shannon basically told me this isn't good. That night, I went back to the drawing board. I don't think I slept for like two days. Like I would have had some naps here and there, but I just, I, I really knew that I had to change direction for the company. And the funny part about that stage in the business is I actually looked into purchasing a plus size women's clothing brand. <laughs> I was going to completely pivot from anything to do with payments and I was going to buy this plus size women clothing brand because I thought I could rebrand it better and sell it better. And, and, you know, the name at the time was not so skinny bitch. It had a swear word in, in the name. And then she was selling to like country clubs where a bunch of kids are at. So I thought maybe the angle I could take could be a bit different. And I was learning about uh, women that are a little bit larger and certain securities they have and like how the clothing covers those insecurities. And I really dug deep on it. And then I ended up, uh, I ended up just not purchasing it because I was trying to structure a deal with her where I could get a loan from her to buy the business from her. And then I would just pay her with her revenue. And, um, and we just didn't come to a negotiation. Then I went back to payments and I looked into uh, what might've been a more, an easier business to launch. The hard part was getting global bank relationships set up because it was hard enough getting bank relationships in Canada. A lot of the banks are nervous to give these special like bank accounts and moving money around. There's added risk to them from uh, 
you know, money laundering standpoint and a, a terrorist financing standpoint. So there's a lot of rules and regulations that you have to follow and you have to really know your compliance or the banks aren't going to trust that you know what you're doing and you're just perceived as risky. So what I did and what I knew was a lower risk business model is B2B supplier payments. So it's a business in Canada that I can do the know your clients. It's called KYC information on, and then they're sending money to China to pay a supplier or Italy to pay a clothing supplier or whatever it is. And those types of payments had lower risk when it came to money laundering and terrorist financing and that. So I decided to launch B2B payments. And I knew there was others that were successful, like TransferWise and World First and these other FX businesses. And I knew the market was big. So I thought, well, I'm going to focus solely on business because they're larger size payments and I'll build a better experience around that. And then that's kind of that formulated. But I would say the other uh, pivotal point in the business is David Raju was uh, the CEO of ZagBank at the time. Uh, He actually gave me my first ever bank account so that I could do my first real transaction, like actual money flows into our accounts and then flows out. And that was a pretty exciting moment because that's the day, two and a half years in, this was like October, 2016, um, when I was able to make my first dollar of revenue. So that was a pretty cool moment too. So you went from 2014 to 2016 without revenue lists. Yeah, like February 2014 to October 2016. So it's about two and a half years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so this bank account was it? It wasn't just like a regular business account. It was you know there's obviously some additional bonuses that it, it kind of affords you. Um, to to run the type of business that you yeah run. is that correct because this is yeah no this is much different this is, I mean it was actually for Zagbank it was the first ever business bank account that they opened and uh, David and the team really wanted to see me succeed and really wanted to see how they could utilize our kind of payment system with their bank in order to launch a fully online bank in Canada. Um, but it was mainly targeted for individuals, but they were interested in looking into businesses as well. So I think they just wanted to kind of, you know, show me that they're willing to work with me and then see if there's opportunity in the future. Cause we, we would be so loyal to them at all times that we would work with them on anything that they needed after that. Because doing that for me as the entrepreneur on my end, and when I'm taking a bus for St. Catharines up to Toronto, is just like, it was the most incredible thing at the time. But you're right. It's a very unique bank account where lots of money allowed to flow in and out and you can send wire transfers from an online platform. And it's a very, um, it's a very challenging bank account to get. Nobody just kind of receives it. Like there's a lot of added complexity goes into actually getting the approval and really it takes the executive level sign off um, in order to open up the bank account, which sounds ridiculous. Like the executive team shouldn't have to sign off on the papers to open up a bank account, right? Like that's a little excessive. It's almost like you're landing a big corporate deal that brings you millions and millions in revenue. No, this is just a big deal just to be alive and actually have a you are you're very bullish about the technology and fintech space now and you know payments specifically can you maybe provide some color for people on what smart pay is now and maybe some of the misconceptions that people have about financial technology and how things have changed from 5 years ago 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, yeah, we did the B2B supplier payments. And what we found is that, um, you know, it's, it's a red ocean out there with that industry. There's a ton of foreign exchange companies. There's a lot of banks that do the exact same thing as us. Yeah, we might have like an online platform and it might be a little bit better of an experience. But some people actually like to call somebody and talk to them about where markets are moving and try and predict things. And when you're a larger business, right, because you have a lot more capital and different currencies and you want to time it right when you're exchanging them back back and forth. So I think our service was good. And, and we did target the small businesses, like 10 employees or less. But those businesses only do a transaction like once a month. And when they're only doing a transaction once a month with you, like you're not top of mind, right? They're not constantly thinking about you. So what we did after like, you know, this is like year five in or something. This would have been, yeah, this would have been last year around June, July, we were hitting like, you know, okay revenue, 25K, 30K monthly revenue. And it was growing, but it was growing without that hockey stick kind of chart. So what I did is I went back to the customers and asked them what they need. And I quickly learned that there was pain points when it came to like PayPal, they would, uh, you know, a Canadian company would have customers in the US and PayPal would pull the US dollars for them, but they would force them to exchange the money, adding on another 3.5% fee plus their 2.9% fee. And they were kind of complaining about that process. Sometimes funds were delayed. So I thought, well, okay, well, I have an international uh, foreign exchange business where I can move money around bank accounts in different countries. Uh, maybe we could you know, get into the e-commerce space and compete head to head with like a PayPal, Visa, MasterCard. Because really those are the only players, Visa, MasterCard, PayPal. And then you have some other one-offs that most people haven't heard of. Others have tried, but they launch with their brand name. Like we don't, uh, we don't advertise SmartPay in the online checkout. So, so basically, what we do now is we help an online business accept debit payments in the online checkout. So it is kind of a competing product to what PayPal offers, but we don't force people to set up an account. Uh, you don't have to load a wallet, or there's like a five business day delay to have funds loaded into your PayPal account. Not every store is going to accept PayPal per se. So we kind of make it easy for an online business for a way to get debit payments in. And Visa debit, MasterCard debit is kind of meant for that. But especially within Canada, it's very se- uh, segregated. It's the, the, It doesn't work well with the big banks. Um, a lot of e-commerce stores don't even offer it because there's a lot of added tech complexity that comes with that. So we basically built uh, a very easy integrated uh, payment plugin where we can have the the online shopper put in their username and password to their online bank, and within the same amount of time it takes to type in your credit card information, your payment's gone through for a debit transaction. So that's kind of what we transitioned to. And then as for your second question for fintech, I mean, yeah, five years ago I was going to I was speaking at payments events, and these were payments events with well established like bankers and people in the payments industry. And the reason I was even able to crack into those speaking arrangements is because they wanted a fresh perspective from an entrepreneur that wasn't from the industry that's rethinking things that coming in. So they always liked having me kind of come in. But at the time, there wasn't really a lot of talk about fintech, but all you had to do was look to the UK. They'd been operating for the last like 11 years at that point with a lot of cool financial technology products. The banks were more open to having technology uh, create a better experience for them. They, t- they have their open banking um, uh, that, they're, that they've kind of successfully started rolling out. And all of this kind of stuff with open APIs into the bank, it just gives more power to the customer, which will make you have loyal 
uh, customers that trust you because you're not kind of monopolizing the market or, or like, you know, like the oligopoly we have here in Canada. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's fine. It built that way, but it kind of does stifle innovation in the sense that it's, it's hard enough for me to get a bank account to start innovating tech. So how, how fast can Canadian entrepreneurs in the fintech space really move if banks are reluctant to open up the doors, if you will? So I think that now it's changed quite a bit when it comes to money movement and money service businesses. Not really. It's actually probably gotten harder to get bank relationships. Um, I don't know why specifically that industry, but I think that others have found ways to crack in. And it's really up to the entrepreneur to just keep pushing forward, to push for that change. Because it's tough to get those bigger guys to really change when they don't have a lot of reason to move fast. And it sounds like you guys have found some solid product market fit. I mean, there's been some, some major victories even with the little time that I've known you and some of the, the clients that you guys are working with. Can you maybe talk about some of those victories and uh, the different companies that you guys are working with? Yeah. Integrate your yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, we definitely hit, um, hit something in, or we've launched a product that's interesting enough in a market that doesn't have a lot of competition where customers are willing to give it a shot, right? It's not a, it's not a hard product to sell because it costs you nothing up front. It takes about a minute to get up and live. Um, there's no monthly fees. There's no, you know, hidden costs. It's going to cost you the same amount of percentage that the credit cards are charging you, that PayPal's charging you will match the rate if you're a larger client uh, doing bigger volumes. So the pricing doesn't change at all. But what happens is there's a lot of customer drop-offs, like, um, six, uh, what is it? 70, 72% of, of, shopping carts are abandoned and out of that 72 percent 59 percent the reason is because lack of payment options or ability to pay so with this new kind of online banking option to make a payment um we're opening up the market to the entire uh, population that's under 18 that doesn't own a credit card um we tailor to certain industries like uh we have we're launching um, with a company called Bold Commerce, which is, uh, they have a, a payment plugin called Cashier that's on Shopify. So we don't have a Shopify plugin yet, but once we're live on that, we have the Ontario Cannabis Store that's interested in, in putting our solution in. Um, so in the medical, legal cannabis space or the provincial uh, government stores that sell retail, uh, we're able to provide an online banking option for all the clients purchasing so that they don't have to use their credit card because a lot of people are having issues crossing the border down to the US just because they purchased some legal cannabis in Canada, which sounds a bit ridiculous, but the laws in America are such that if it's not federally legal in their country, then it's considered an illegal act, even if it was legal in your country. So 24% of online cannabis patients were complaining about only having credit card as an option. And that's kind of where our unique value prop came into, you know, the medical cannabis space, the licensed producers uh, or the online provincial stores as well. So that was one kind of area. And we also just had a, a great conversation with Toys R Us. Um, they're going to be integrating our solution now. They're not in yet currently, but they're, uh, we're doing the roadmap now to get things put in. And then we also have kind of mid-sized, uh, different, uh, kind of clothing brands. Um, we have companies that sell drones online. There's kind of a mix of other businesses there, but it just seems that in every business, there's an opportunity that with those 59% of abandonments or because of lack of payment options, you can capture some of that revenue that you would have otherwise lost. So that's kind of the biggest value prop that we have with the product now. This kind of brings things full circle with talking about that Google search that you did on how to build business in Canada. And now 
given that Canada is leading in terms of marijuana leg- legislation and you know legalization and stuff, you know, you found a very interesting pain point that is more or less specific to this market, given that it's actually legal, but can be that can be expanded to other markets, given that you know cannabis will become legal country by country or region by region. What what were some of the things that you know, or I guess, have you ever considered? not building a business in Canada, like maybe what it would be in a place like San Francisco or New York. And, you know, why did you choose Toronto? Yeah, you know what, like with, um, I guess I'm very patriotic when I went through the next 36, which is an entrepreneur acceleration program. It's built to educate young entrepreneurs that are starting out and give them the confidence and the resources and connections to hopefully make them a a massive success. And they don't want people building small lifestyle businesses. They want them building global companies out of Canada. And I kind of like the underdog story a little bit in the sense that not a lot of Canadians yet, and it's it's definitely changing massively. Like our tech community is growing very strong. We have the Shopify's out there, the Hootsuites of the world. Like we've had a lot of big tech successes, and I think that's going to continue to happen. And I like the idea of showing other Canadians that we can be just as aggressive as American business owners and build these global companies. Like people celebrate selling their company for fifty million dollars in Canada. Um, you know, they build a payments business. PayPal offers them fifty million, and they're you know they think they've made it right. But but the truth is, the reason PayPal, an American company, is buying that company for fifty million is because they want to capture all the future profits of that business line product or industry that they're in or what have you. So I think that it's very important for Canadians to believe it um, and, and in their minds so that it gives them the energy to keep going when you're building something for two and a half years without any revenue. And all everybody else would tell you it's time to give up. You know, you have to persevere. And that's probably the number one thing. Like Steve Jobs will say, he's convinced that the only thing that sets apart a successful entrepreneur from an unsuccessful entrepreneur is perseverance. Right, getting through those hard times and pushing through, and never stop believing to a hundred percent degree certainty. Like if you look at, uh, I think his name was uh, Hussein Bolt, uh, the first guy to run the four minute mile. After he ran the four minute mile, no, no person in history had ever accomplished that. After he did it, then I think it was the next Olympics or the next year, whatever it was, like twenty plus other people ran the mile in, in four minutes. Right, like. Once you see somebody else do it and you and then you can believe it in your mind to a hundred percent degree certainty, somehow that gives you that energy to keep pushing forward to make sure that you figure it out no matter what happens in the business. So I'm kind of patriotic to show other Canadians, guys, we can build global companies. We don't have to sell them. If you need an exit event for your for your investors, you can take IPO, you can launch on the stock market, raise the capital you need, and just keep growing the business. The important part is to find, you know, strong competitive modes because and keep innovating because over time you can surely you know lose market share and then you know lose interest in a a growing business and maybe a plateaus but these are the type of big risks that we should be taking because if we don't have multi-billion dollar exits we're not going to be able to take that much capital and fund back the early entrepreneurs like they do in silicon valley so although it probably makes more sense to raise capital in silicon valley i have this feeling that like if you believe it in your mind and you keep pushing, you can convince others the same thing. And then hopefully that breeds more large business owners and bigger thinkers out of Canada. Because if we don't keep innovating and growing our entrepreneurship in Canada, we will not stay ahead forever. 
Like it doesn't, it doesn't happen where a country just stays wealthy and successful forever. In history, we've seen, you know, big, big dynasties come up and crash. So because of that, I want to make sure we still stay hungry. Like we want to keep being the wolf climbing the mountain, not the wolf at the top of the mountain. So just as a caveat, the, the sprint or the runner was uh, Roger Bannister. Usain Bolt, oh, hundred meter sprinter. I just wanted to, to, to drop that in, but no, that's, that's a really Thank good you. point because yeah, like there's, there's a, there's a level of mental tricks that the mind plays on us when there aren't examples, tangible examples in front of us of people who have achieved things before. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, I don't know if you ever attended like a, a singularity conference, but you know, they always ask, you know, what type of potential does a baby have? You know, a baby knows nothing about the world, but we're defaulted to believe that it has all the potential that it can, it can dream of, right? Like there's, there's nothing that a, a newborn baby can achieve because it, it doesn't, it doesn't know anything else. It doesn't know failure. It doesn't know what it's like to, to not, you know, achieve at something. And then, you know, they go on to asking, well, what kind of potential do you have? You know, it must be more than that baby because you have a little bit more experience, right? But there's a, there's a level of mental mind games that's, that's played, unfortunately, that we tell ourselves that, you know, we can't do things up until that, you know, someone has experienced it. So uh, kudos to you to, to sticking it out in Canada because I think there are a lot of other benefits that we do see here in terms of our quality of living you know, working with the type of people that we want to work with, you know, we can, we can go on and on in terms of the benefits of building a company here. And you, you talked about a little bit about the moats and kind of the, the differentiators and, and unique things that are important to building a billion dollar company, right? Maybe someone listening to this doesn't have an understanding in terms of what makes smart pay different and how you guys are going to continually to innovate maybe you know if let's say your your uk competitors come into canada or you want to expand to the uk vice versa you know what what are some of the you know differentiators that you think smart pay has as you kind of look to take the next next step it's a really good question so i mean for for smart pay specifically i got to be honest with you i don't see it yet like we we do have a little bit of a barrier uh competitive advantage to get in the market because you know when you're setting up a payments business, you have to build all those bank relationships and continuously build them and build the confidence in each bank that you're going to run a very perfectly compliant payments business. So that does take some time. It took me two and a half years. It might take others less time. It might take more. There is that barrier to get in. But for other businesses, I mean, ultimately, there is ways you could try and copy the tech that we've done and move into this space, which is why we're kind of like we're laying... For the most part, low. Obviously, I'm talking open on the podcast about uh, what we're up to, but um, that doesn't mean others will fully understand, you know, what the opportunity is. Like we have more data internally that lets us know, and really, it's your kind of playbook there as to how well you understand the customer. Somebody else could copy the tech, try and launch the same business, but not really understand the customers as deep as we do, and then we're going to end up winning just because we understand them better. Um, and that's a big that's a, that can in itself be a differentiator your kind of plan of action, your go-to-market strategy, where you can win over somebody else that might even have better tech than you or, you know, something that's um, 
you know, yeah, more innovative or more bank relationships or what have you, but they don't get the customer well enough to sell it as good as you. So you can't, we, we do have that currently where we really understand our customer bases that we deal with. You know, we've built the bank relationships, so we have it continuing to do that. But ultimately, as for like patenting it or, you know, getting something like that, there, there's just not a lot of that yet. So I don't know what kind of competitive moat will come from this. So currently right now, I believe it'll be a multi-billion dollar company just because the multiples in the industry are insanely high. The profitability is there. The market size is there. All, all the kind of ingredients to having a multi-billion dollar company are, are here. But if, if I don't continuously find new competitive advantages in the business, then I'm unsure if we'll continue to run this business for the next four decades or five decades. Like I would like to do that. That's what I have set in my head. But I also am intelligent enough to know that if there isn't something, if there isn't that competitive mode and others are just going to come in and do undercutting on price, that's not a sexy long-term vision for a business. So in that type of scenario, if we don't find those competitive advantages, which we'll try and learn as we go, then what we would do is we would keep that growth trajectory very high, IPO it, or, or maybe look at getting acquired, or maybe somebody else wants to buy us, and then we would have that exit in the business. But that would have been just because we didn't find you know something that would keep us um, a long, keep a long-lasting business going forward. So that's a very interesting question, Sar. But it's a tough one to answer for others because it's kind of like just um, trial and error, find out what sticks, and then if you find something that's really good that keeps you apart from everybody else, then then you're in a good position. But uh, yeah, in tech, it's a little bit hard too because it's tough to patent tech because there's other ways to code it in different languages or build something similar, but in a different way. And then all of a sudden, it's not the same thing now. And I mean, Uber is the best example. You know, there's nothing necessarily innovative in terms of what they are doing in their technology. And they certainly weren't the first, you know, on-demand, um, you know, taxi hailing app that was introduced to the market but they really understood their customer and they really went through that design process thinking of thinking of all the pain points that you know a ride hailing individual would face and integrating that into their their platform and and more importantly into their 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 operational model right i mean 5 10 years ago for however long they were they've been existed for you know we would never think that it would be archaic to leave a car and not have to take money out of our pocket to to pay that driver. But they, they understood that that was such a big pain for individuals and it's such an awkward moment that they, they removed that friction in the process and in the end ended up winning the winning the market. So um, I, I truly believe in that, you know, it, it takes time to identify what those moats are um, and, you know, I think you guys are, are on the right track. And I mean, Walmart is another yeah. example. I don't know if you know their story, but where they were situated in the US, uh, the, the, the guy who founded Walmart, he wanted to move to a big city, but his wife was like, no, we got to stay here. This is where our family is. And it just so happened that the first store that they opened in, it was, uh, was kind of at this... Um, this location where there were five major cities that were and counties that surrounded it. So people that wanted to buy goods from, uh, you know, a wholesaler like Walmart or not a wholesaler, but a big, big department store like Walmart, you know, they just came to that location and that ended up becoming their defensible growth strategy. You know, they would look for other pockets around the U S that 
you know, would have these kind of intersecting cities and stuff, right? So uh, I truly do believe that, um, you know, you, and you mentioned it too, you know, you guys are in an industry that you, you have some tremendous multiples and, you know, the cost of customer acquisition isn't very, isn't very high. So, and the, the long-term value could be very, very good. Um, just to wrap up, I know we got to finish off here. Um, you know, what are some of the hard, what's the hardest thing that you've ever done in your life? You know, this could be business, this could be relationship, this could be, you know, personal, you know, the reason why I ask it is because, you know, what, what, what did it teach you and how did it define who you are today? Yeah, that's a really good one. I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to decide how deep I want to go with this one too, because there's definitely some things in my life, like every, you know, entrepreneur or in general, every person, right? Life is hard. Like there's lots of things that can happen in your life where it really tests your ability to persevere and overcome that situation. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a pretty open guy with this stuff, so I don't mind kind of mentioning it. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give a different example for this one. Um, but, but others that know me on a deeper personal level, and I'm happy to uh, talk with anybody one-on-one if they want to reach out directly to me. Because I just love to share experiences with others because it helps us all become more intelligent, right? But I think ultimately, um, yeah, with that one, I got to tell you, man, the easiest decision I've ever made is to start this business. Like, by far, like, once you start and once you're so excited every day where you're actually working a 16-hour day and you don't even blink an eye about that, that's when you know your life is about to get much easier. When I say easier... Um, I think it was Les Brown that said, if you do what is easy, life will be hard. And if you do what is hard, life will be easy. And what he means by that is once you find something that you're passionate about, whether it's business or you're trying to be a professional actor in Hollywood or whatever it is, I mean, once you take that path, it, it is hard and you go through lots of hardships, but going through those hardships actually create you into a person that is able to survive in the real world. So it prepares you for every situation where I would argue if you're working a job with a bunch of student debt and you have a wife and a family or a husband or whatever it is and a a family and dogs and then your pipe breaks in your house and you have no money to pay for it like like that to me would be a much harder thing to go through and there'd be so much stress that it would be a a tougher you know thing to go about but yeah so the easiest thing was building the business uh but the hardest thing would have probably been getting that bank account um just because you know it, it was so many like so many years of not making any revenue so it makes it harder and harder to convince people that you have a viable business idea. Um, so I would probably leave that for the hardest stuff I've ever done. We're going to do some rapid fire and then we're going to finish up here. Sounds good. Beyonce or Rihanna? Beyonce. Um, Adidas or Nike? Adidas. If you could choose one, sitting or standing for 24 hours straight, what would you choose? I would say standing. And a beach or a mountain? Beach. Jonathan, I appreciate your time. Where can people find you online? Where is your digital presence? Yeah, you know what? Uh, I'm, LinkedIn is pretty good. So Jonathan, J-O-H-N-A-T-H-A-N, Holland, uh, like the country. Um, you can always reach out to me. My email It's Jonathan at smartpaycheckout.com. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. No problem. Bye now. This episode is brought to you by the Sea Tribe Festival. Sea Tribe reimagines the festival experience with the goal of bringing together innovative and creative people and proactive thinkers. 
by integrating a business conference with music performances, trendy fashion shows, intimate roundtable discussions, culinary experiences, wellness sessions, and artistic activations. C-Tribe curates inspiring environments that help catalyze action. Also brought to you by Autonomic. Leveraging AI to remove the biggest bottleneck when building software. Without getting too technical, Autonomic teaches computers and algorithms to test your software so that your most expensive engineering talent doesn't have to.